So you remember that time a couple of weeks ago when we did a show after not having the show for a couple of weeks and we're like, yeah, we don't remember how this works and hey, what's this button do and all of that? We have a show? Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, do we still do this thing? Okay, it was a really bad couple of weeks. You're not well, going to like wake up and suddenly we have the Mail Buoy podcast again, are you? No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I mean, there there was, well, we, we always run into this problem. Well, first of all, you know, again, because we have to remember how to do this. Hey, welcome <laughs> to the Book of Birch. Hey. Hey, I, yeah. <laughs> I think that was our first cold open ever. Maybe. Could be. Could be. <laughs> All right, so let's go back into like the Wayback Machine. Um, U.S. Well, this hemisphere races, Western hemisphere races, are hard for us. Yeah, because it's not suddenly morning races; it's afternoon races, and it really screws up with our schedule. So, so less U.S. races. We're pro less U.S. I, races. I'm trying to remember. Did did this string of us missing shows start with you going to L.A. to hang out with stars and Jim? Maybe. That would have been mid-October. I thought we had a show after I got back from L.A. and hanging out with Star Singular. All, all the famous peoples and Jim one star <laughs> and you know notable listener and friend of the podcast jim yes i'm not denying that part i mean we gotta give him credit for loyalty i think he drove something like six hours to see me that day and that's that's fair so there was that then there was we watched the race too late to record mm-hmm and then I went to Arizona. Uh-huh. And then we watched a race that was too late to record. Uh-huh. And then there was something else that happened. We watched the race and it was too late to record. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we looked up and I think it's been like four weeks. And uh, I know that we went to breakfast on Friday morning as we always do. And we had the conversation of, so do we still have a podcast? And and we do. We have stuff to do. We have a lot of stuff to talk about. We're not going to go all the way back to the beginning of the stuff that we missed. So we're going to basically that assume that you have either watched races or followed random pieces of F1 news. Which over is what the last we normally break. do to begin with. But So we basically cherry pick the things that are timely-ish and relevant to us i mean we had a lot of conversations and no time to record about the final findings of the cost cap Mm -hmm. and the penalties that were handled down and where that came from we're not going to dig into that no i think we've beaten that pretty much i mean we talked about well, we it on the about, we, we talked talk about, about it on the show, the show several times but, but, but not with the final findings yeah not with the final findings and not with the penalties that came down and why they were decided the way they were decided and i still think that there is so i think all i will say about it 
mm-hmm. the best that I can say about it, is that the penalty that was handed down, it sounds like nobody liked. And if nobody liked it, maybe it was the right thing to do. You know, Red Bull didn't like the penalty that was given. They thought it was too harsh. The other team, the the remaining teams on the grid didn't like the penalty. They thought it was too soft. Maybe they hit the right balance. I don't know. We'll, We'll see what happens coming out of this year, I think. Well, the test of this is... If, you know, you're using the definition of compromise where everybody leaves unhappy. But the test is whether or not the penalty is enough to discourage breaking the cost cap in the future. Yeah. And that is always the, that's going to be the ongoing question. But we're not talking about that. So see all of that that we just talked about, we didn't do that. It didn't happen. All right. So what we're going to start with, though, is... We have news about the sprint races. And I know you don't like the sprint races. Everyone knows I don't like the sprint races. I called Domenicali and said, you blooming idiot, stop the sprint races. What I think was interesting is that finally more of the pundits are acknowledging that the sprint races, from a fan's point of view, make no sense. Right. And from a team's point of view, don't make a whole lot of sense. But we're getting more of them next year. We're getting six of them next year. I will go so far as to tell you that there has been one sprint race per season. Mm-hmm. One sprint race. It happens to be in the same location that has even had a ounce of interestingness to it at all. So if they really, really cared about the fans and they cared about the teams... But they really like the sprint race idea. They could limit it to the one track that apparently works for it. Well, word is the reason why we're going to see the six sprint races in the locations that we are is because they learned from the one good sprint race that we've had. Well, the the two good sprint races that we had in the one location. All right. I'll put it that way. So, quick quiz. Do you agree with me on the one location that works for sprint races? Yes. And honestly, to this day, I'm still surprised at how well it works for sprint races. Are you planning on sharing that with our listening so public? We we really like the sprint race that happened in Brazil. It was exciting. Now, the whole thing of it screws up our schedule for the weekend and our plan for the weekend, that I don't like. Mm-hmm. But in terms of... An exciting, quick race, Brazil has worked. So what the FIA and and F1 has decided for 2026, um, and we're waiting for official confirmation, but everyone's saying that this is what it's going to be. The six races where we will have, there is six locations we will have sprints, is Azerbaijan, um, the Red Bull Ring for the Austrian Grand Prix, for the Belgian Grand Prix at Spa, for the Qatar Grand Prix in Losale, the U.S. Grand Prix in Austin, and back again for the third time in Interlagos. And Interlagos may be the only track that has hosted a sprint every single year that we've had a sprint. Okay, so they're dropping the one at Monza and they're dropping the one 
Uh, where was the other one? Well, we had one. Well, there there was one this year at um, Imola. Mm-hmm. And there was also, I believe, one this year at um, uh, Zandvoort. So they're dropping those. Keeping yes. Keeping the Brazilian one, which is the only track that seems to be conducive to it. Well, the reason why they selected these tracks, and, and they said that the, the, this is a change in the logic and a change in the strategy. Previously, the tracks that were selected were essentially the ones that were willing to pay the most money for a sprint race. Okay. Always a good way to determine good racing. However, what they've realized that if you want a good sprint race, you need to have it at a track that has passing. Mm-hmm. And has a proven record of passing. We don't know that that's necessarily the case with Losail. That's why Brazil was so good. True. So that's why these tracks were selected. We know we can get passes over it at uh, Spa. Um, this year, we had a lot of great action over at the U.S. Grand Prix in Austin. So there is at least, you know, th- and I think Red Bull, the, the Red Bull ring has a passing zone i mean it's not completely processional but i don't think it's as good as the others i don't think so but i w- i'm so ready for this experiment to be over yeah i don't i so i don't think it's going to be over and i don't think it's going to be over because from a ratings perspective and from a money perspective so, so here's here's the challenge with the sprint race from a, from a ratings and a money perspective, this is now premium viewing for F1. So they can get more money. The numbers go up. They can charge more for advertisers and all the feeds. They can charge more for the various broadcasters to carry that sprint race. That's money they would not get for a free practice two session. Because that's the problem with sprint races from a fan perspective. You know, the only people who watch the practice sessions are the diehard fans. Mm-hmm. More diehard than us because we won't watch the practice sessions. There's no reason for it. But when you have a sprint race, just about every single F1 fan out there is going to watch all three of those. They're going to watch the qualifying. They're going to watch the sprint. And they're going to watch the actual race because you're not going to come into the weekend and go, well, well, I'll just watch the qualifying and on Friday and then I'll watch the, the race on Sunday because Saturday happens and everything, you know, that can change the grid and change where things were. You're not going to skip the qualifying on Friday and then pick up the sprint on Saturday because then you're not going to know why the sprint ended up with the, the grid that it did. So if you're a fan of Formula One, now instead of two events in a weekend you're going to watch, you're going to watch three and it's going to drive up the ratings and it's going to drive up the numbers. Because they don't care whether or not we like it. We're going to watch it because you can't go through a weekend and not watch the damn thing. You're looking at me like, crap, that actually makes sense. <laughs> no, I- I'm looking at you because what a horrendously negative statement and sadly i fear true they don't care if we like it they only care that we watch it there you go i mean 
honestly, at some point, people that don't like it won't watch it anymore. I mean, that will eventually happen. And But what's actually going to happen, I think, isn't so much that folks who don't like it aren't going to watch it. I think it's going to drag down viewership across every event. Exa- That's the bigger issue. Exactly. Well, okay. They're riding a wave right now on mm-hmm. viewership based on Drive to Survive. And the fact that everybody was gazing at their own navel for the last two and a half years, looking for things to stream... And this hit Netflix at exactly the right moment. It told the right kind of story. Mm-hmm. We'll discuss at some point whether it was really real or whatnot. Well, the right kind of story to bring in folks. Folks that were gazing at their own navels under yeah. lockdown. And they're riding that wave. Now, it is the cardinal sin of good marketing to believe that this wave will last forever. Mm -hmm. And if they are not laying in the types of things that keep fans engaged and interested going forward, they will lose a percentage of people that are, quote, drive to survive Formula One fans. There's a number, that's just a number of group of them. It's like the farewell football fans. Mm -hmm. Fair weather. Okay, fair weather. That's the word I was looking for. I had a really great point until I got the wrong word. Jeez. Um, but while people are in this like, okay, I want to consume all that there is of Formula One. And they give these honestly dull races. You're going to have people that are like, well, I really liked the story that was in Drive to Survive. And this is kind of interesting, but boy, that race is dull. And then how much viewership do you lose? Because what they saw was a sprint, thinking it might, maybe they thought that was the race. And then they get to, oh, I don't even think I want to spend the time. I mean, two hours of that? That's kind of dull. Well, that that was one of the arguments for the creation of the sprint to begin with, was it folks didn't necessarily want a two-hour race, and this was a quickie F1 hit. Um, the, the challenge that we've got right now, is that the metric that F1 is looking at to judge the success of the sprints and the popularity of the sprints is the wrong metric. Oh, yeah. Because what they're looking at is the viewership numbers. And again, the viewership is going to be higher. And and they're looking at the viewership numbers compared to a Friday free practice too. And those numbers by default are going to be higher that doesn't make it the right metric to look at. No, they they should be comparing it to um, when qualifying is on Friday at at, um, Monaco. Qualifying's not on Friday at Monaco. Oh. Friday up until this year was the off day at Monaco because the practices were on Thursday. Okay, I got that wrong. Yeah. No, what they should be looking at is the actual fan feedback on their surveys and listening to that of the, do you like the the sprint race? And when only 5% of them say yes, that's not a sign that folks want it and they like it, regardless of what the viewership numbers say. Well, and that's the even weirder thing is you say you want to listen to the fans. You're not listening to the fans. Yeah. 
The fans say, no, we don't like this. So other things being talked about, and and this, I I, I could see the drive for it, and and I I certainly could support it. Um, A change to the penalty system around power units and their various components to find a way to eliminate tactical engine changes and tactical component changes. So this, I think, is fascinating. And this really brings out the geek. I don't know how they're going to pull it off. but Yeah, but this pulls out the geek in me. So let's back up and explain what we're talking about. Um, we were watching today's Abu Dhabi race. And I started wondering, because I couldn't remember, and I to this day I can't tell you uh, what the answer to this question is. Mm. I don't remember if Lewis Pohl had an engine penalty all season, which... You know, seems kind of odd considering he didn't have, you know, he didn't have a great mm-hmm. car. And, but an interesting stat, he didn't have a single retirement this year until Abu Dhabi. So that was kind of chewing on my in my mind. I'm like, hey, wait a minute. There were a lot of engine um, penalties earlier, and they were all centered around like a couple of We've races where it's really tactical to, to take the engine penalty at that point. And so I pulled up an article to try to figure out how many people had had engine uh, penalties and replacements, how many had exceeded the three. That's what I wanted to know. Because my theory had been, if Mercedes was actually proving that they had the reliability, if they could finally get the porpoising correct and get the power where they wanted it, they really would have an unstoppable car. And it's like, I keep feeling like they're just on the precipice. I'm hopeful. I'm ever hopeful. So so basically, you, you had this idea that if Mercedes actually built a good car, they would have had an unstoppable car. Exactly. And it, <laughs> if I had some ham, <laughs> I could have ham and eggs if, if I had some eggs. If they I, had bought, built a crap car, they would have had an unstoppable Yeah, okay. <laughs> so this is what's going on in my head. Now stop it, you. So I pull up an article that then starts to explain, because apparently I am not unique and I have not had the only person that had this random thought in their head, found an article that explained that seven of the drivers had doubled the engine allotments. They had taken mm-hmm. three additional engines than you're allowed under the regulations. Two of those drivers were Ferrari, who came in second in the championship. Yeah. So what was really kind of, you know, rolling through my head was, yeah, I understand that the penalty for taking too many uh, engines is it drives up your costs and you've got to watch the cost cap and all that. But what if somebody, some boffin out there, did the tactical math to figure out that we could change out the engine, take the penalty at a strategic point, and have a fresher engine, a more upgraded engine. And could you do it that way? And then sure enough, that's where you come in and you're like, that's what they're talking about, trying to regulate against. Well, one of the things that I want to be clear about is exactly what they're talking about. What they're not talking about is stopping the decision as to if you need to take an engine penalty, when to do it. 
that that they're not talking about changing you and and we're not going to stop that that somebody's going to go well you know we're, we're running out of units this is the time we should take the hit and that's not changing but what it is though is, is under the current system drivers have a limited number of each power unit element that they can use across the, the entire season and at, you know we we see that penalty if you breach that that number you get a penalty, and that penalty starts with a back-of-the-grid penalty. Mm-hmm. So you already go right to the back of the grid. Any sub- subsequent part changes, and, and this is the part that really kind of makes no sense since you're already sending somebody to the back of the grid, but any subsequent change to part, so so say you, you change out the, the, um, the power unit, and that gives you your back-of-the-grid penalty, and then you change out in that same race the gearbox well now you only get a five place penalty on top of your back of the grid and then you change out you know your your mguh that's another five then you change out the turn and, and that part doesn't fully make sense i mean you're already at the back of the grid and i guess if you change fewer components you'll end up further back than the other team that went and changed out you know, two components and you change out three. But what they're trying to stop is this idea that, well, okay, if I got to go and rip out the, the, the power unit and replace it, I might as well throw in a new gearbox. I might as well throw in all of these other pieces because I'm already at the back. And even if I end up behind three other cars that are doing the same thing, I'm at the back. I can make it, you know... I. I can just keep throwing parts at it. I can't get penalized any worse than being at the back. Mm-hmm. So they want to change that component of it. Now, how they're going to do it and what they're going to do, I don't really know. Short of them turning around and saying, all right, we're going to start slapping on five-second penalties. Or it's once you get to the back, well, you're, the next thing that you get is a five-second penalty to to uh, a five second stop go at your next at the first pit stop of that race and if it happens uh, you know you can change another component then it's a 10 second stop go and then after that if it's another thing well now you've also got the 10 second stop go and a drive through i don't know but that's the only thing i can think of but then the question becomes is that fair to somebody that had to replace all of those parts because they got into an incident I mean, you're now saying that I could not finish the race prior because I was in an accident, had to change out pretty much everything on my car, and now you're telling me I start the next race 15 seconds in the hole. Like, that's that seems to be hyper-penalized. I, I think that the feeling there, though, is um, that's why we have driving standards. Well, yeah. Now, my other understanding is that they really do want to get the teams to be positively incented in a bigger way to not take on so many engines. Like it really should be a rare thing that they take on this many. Did you know that there were only five drivers this year that did not exceed the three engine allotment? Which given the number of races that we've had is actually really impressive. Um, You know, I agree with trying to prevent teams from doing what they used to do in the 80s and 
new know, tra- what, new race, new engine. It, well, it wasn't even just new race, new engine. It was the end of a session, change the engine. You know, we, we had free practice one, change the engine. Free practice two, change the engine. You know, it, it, it's stopping it that we were changing an engine at every single possibility. I, I agree with trying to force the hand there. And yeah, improving reliability and making sure that teams are building better engines and stronger engines that can last longer, I think is ultimately beneficial for Formula One. However, does it really make sense to turn around and say you get three engines over a 24 race season? Mm -hmm. And I don't know, A, if that's really makes sense. And yeah, I I, I just, I don't know how you you figure that one out. I, I, I do kind of question if really we've got the right number set. I can understand that. The other thing that they have talked about, um, the the F1 commission, they met this weekend, and that's where this conversation was coming from, was around the tire blankets and what to do with them. So originally they were set to be banned in 2024. Um, And the the full-on ban was going to come after this year, a scheduled reduction in the temperature that they could have on those the tire blankets to begin with so that we could, you know, slowly wean the teams off of it. Uh, however, um, they, I guess they did a trial of the revised blanket te- temperatures in Austin, Mexico, and teams didn't like it. And the drivers didn't like it. There's a lot of concern about um, sending the drivers out on cold tires. And, you know, th- they're looking at it not just from a performance issue, but a potential safety issue. Yeah. Um the only question that I have around this is that if the temperature is that big of a deal that it impacts safety, that I think we need to look at the compounds and the manufacture of these tires so that running them cold is not as much of a concern. Because let's face it, you know, the, these cars go out on the grid and yes, they go out on the grid with warm tires and then they sit there while we go through the the starting procedure and then they go through a formation lap which cools the tires down quite a bit now they're not completely cold but they cools it down quite a bit and then they sit again while the grid forms back up and you know away we go and the tires are much cooler than they've been in the past do do we need to rethink the compounds that are being used and their heat performance and and the impact of heat on their performance well, I think that's one way of attacking it. The other question is, what is gained by losing the tire blankets? It, so it was proposed as a cost-saving me- measure. Because other series use tire blankets. But but again, the, the whole reason behind it the, for that proposal was cost savings. You know, the, these blankets are expensive to make. Um they they're heavy they get toted around everywhere is it really a significant cost i don't think so i mean in the grand scheme of things i mean i I would think that having what five sets of tire blankets 
per team is a whole lot cheaper than, oh, I don't know. Manufacturing wet tires that they never use? I was going to say manufacturing how many tires that they never use in a race weekend, shipping them to the race venue, then shipping them to the UK unused to destroy them. I'm kind of thinking over a course of a season that costs more money. Mm-hmm. Just saying. Um, the other thing that they are looking at doing, so we've got three things that they're talking about. Um, this one, I, I'm interested to see how it shakes out, especially after this season. Um, so this talk of fitting up onto the car's uh, wheel arches, specifically in wet races to reduce spray. I think that if it works, I think that could be really cool. The only question that I have is, does it make sense to do this during a wet race? And how would this work if a car, you know, we have a race that starts dry and then rain comes in the middle of it or, you know, starts wet, the arches are fitted and it dries out. You know, is there going to be, which could be interesting in its own right of longer pit stops because the arches have to be fit plate fitted on the car before they can head back out with their wet tires that could add an interesting element strategy could then again it could also make it impossible for teams to double stack cars exactly so yeah i it'd be interesting i i I think if they're going to go this route, they just mandate that these wheel arches are permanent fixtures of the car. Well, they first need to know that they work. Yeah. Let's start there. Yeah. Okay. Um, But then, yes, if, you know, if you can't figure out what you're going to do, like when and how they would appear versus disappear, then it's probably just needs to be something you slap on the car and keep it there. Yeah. So... And I think we had mentioned in the last show that we did, all those ages ago, the the W Series ending early. Correct. And Jamie Chadwick being named winner three races early um, because basically W Series ran out of money. And Lewis Hamilton and sev- several others said, well, you know, W Series is great, but why isn't Formula One and the FIA doing something about this? Exactly. Why, why aren't they having? Well, Formula One and the FIA and Mohammed bin Salayim heard the calls and they answered. So they can hear the calls that we need to help women in motorsport, which I do not disagree with, but they cannot hear the calls that we want to end sprint races. It's like, are well, one of us not going in the wrong hang, right number? Hang, hang on a second. Because one, you haven't heard what they're proposing. And two, these calls have been happening for how many years? True. And just now they've taken action. I guarantee you these calls have been going on a whole lot longer than sprint races have even been anybody's brainwave. And also true. So possibly in the next 20 years, we can finally get rid of the sprint races. Yeah, probably. All right. So what are they going to do for our uh, women in motorsport? What they, they have they're doing in starting in 2023 they've launched the f1 academy it is an all women's series that will start in 2023 
But to be clear, while it is within, unlike the, the W series, it is within the F1 ladder, it is at the Formula 4 level. Mm. So this is not intended to be a top tier series. And one of the other things to be very clear about is this is not intended to be a replacement for W series. Okay. However, at least it exists within the Formula One graduation tier and learning tier. So at least there's that. Um, But it's at the F4 level. It'll feature a 15-car grid with five teams each entering three cars. Um, The teams are going to be existing outfits across Formula 2 and Formula 3. The season will consist of seven rounds made up of three races with one round, like just one round, likely to be on an F1 weekend. The idea here is... And, and the belief is that what's missing for women is some kind of ramp into the F1 Junior Series. And while I think that's accurate to some extent, I mean, we, we, we see a lot of girls competing against boys in the karting series. And a lot of those boys who make it up from the karting series into the Junior Series of F1 we don't see girls making that jump. So the idea here is to at least give them a dedicated platform to bridge whatever the gap is that these F3 teams seem to believe there is for girls coming out of karting and prep them and give them a dedicated potential path into F2 and F3. So here's the question that I have. Okay. And I'm convinced that you will not have the answer. Okay, well, that's good. <laughs> All the pressure's off. Then. Um, is this a function of that we have, have, have we reached out to the F3 teams, for example, and said, why are you not picking up girls out of karting that at, the, at any rate, um, not even like at the same rate that you're picking up the boys? Is there a, a reason that that is not happening or is this a we're going to try to fix the girls situation so are we actually solving a problem that's the barrier or are we trying to tell these young women that they need to get fixed and they have to go through some extra hurdle that boys don't go through so what the statement from f1 said because they they kind of addressed it they said during assessments of the barriers young female drivers face with entering the F1 period pyramid, it became clear that they do not have the same amount of experience as their male counterparts at the same age. The goal is to fill this gap and offer them access to more track time, racing, and testing. They will also grow by working with professional teams who are renowned in motorsport for nurturing young drivers and who will help them develop the crucial technical, physical, and mental preparations. Okay, so my question goes doubles down why don't they get the same amount of track time in karting i don't know i i I really don't um the other thing about that's notable about this is that f1 is going to subsidize each entry with a budget of 150,000 euros per season and the drivers competing in the academy will be required to match the amount 
which it claims represents a fraction of the usual costs in a comparable series. Okay. So we'll see how it plays out. Um, so we got to talk a little bit more about Red, Red Bull because for a team that in the last two months won the Drivers' Championship and the Constructors' Championship, they've had a really crappy two months. Yeah, they have. They really have. Um, with the loss of, of Dietrich Mateschitz, which say whatever you will about what you think of Red Bull itself, the reality is Red Bull and so many drivers on the grid owe their careers and so much to, to Dietrich Mateschitz. Um, he really has done a lot for the sport, whether you like Red Bull or not. He really has, and you cannot deny that. But the hit, the loss of him, um, the cost cap issues, and then there was Brazil. <laughs> Brazil was just a bad weekend all around, and it just went, got, it just, as we went deeper into the weekend, it got worse for Red Bull. And just when you thought it couldn't get any worse for Red Bull, it got worse for them. So obviously there was Max's sudden and shocking loss of performance mm-hmm. in the sprint race, which, hey, was part of the reason why we got a great sprint race. Um, but that sudden and shocking loss of performance. And then we get to Sunday and the tangle that Max has with Lewis Hamilton. Yeah. Because we have to start there. And, you know, damaging his car, knocking him back out of the, the, the top three, um, kind of damaging Lewis's race, but not a whole lot, um, but really had a significant impact on Max. And then Max gets a time penalty on top of that and on top of the damage and, and the further performance loss he had. Well, then you find out what was going through Max's head during this. Max's statement. To what happened here? I just felt it as soon as I was going to get that. And he's talking, you know, as as he got alongside Lewis, he said, "I just felt it as soon as I was going next to him that he had no intention to leave me space." And okay, if you don't leave me space, are we just going to, to collide? He added, "I thought after last year we maybe forgot about it. We can finally race, you know, because first of all, when I went side by side, I thought, okay, let's have a good race here." But then you feel it with the driver, if he's going to leave space or not. And there was zero intention to, to leave me space. So we went and shoved the car down there anyway. Yeah. I don't have room, but I'm going there anyway. Don't have room. And I know he's not going to give me room, but I'm going to stick my nose in there anyway. And, you know, <laughs> I understand Lewis's perspective. And, and, and I don't necessarily, from our, our talking with drivers in the the IndyCar pits and in the, the Indy Junior Series, this tactic of making it clear that you're not going to give an inch and you can't push another driver or, or, or that a driver's not going to let you push them around, it's kind of a valid tactic and it's a valid psychological tactic. 
And if you knew the driver wasn't going to give you room, it's that whole idea of, then I'm not going to stick my nose in there. Right. And the fact that Max did it anyway, when he knew Lewis was, that's where I got a problem. Well, bigger than that. Mm -hmm. This is one of those things where I think Max's immaturity just oozes. I don't think it's immaturity. I think it's attitude. Well, it could be attitude. I think of his attitude as being immature. I think that's the piece of this. Max doesn't do this with the kids he came up with. That's the bigger thing. He's trying to knock Lewis off the perch. Mm-hmm. And he's gunning after, you know, and has been. And, okay, granted, 22, He Max has been utterly dominant. And I cannot, like, say that he didn't do all that you have to do. But... He's he does not play respectful driver when Lewis is involved. Never has. And I well, I just don't think that that I think that the hat is going to bite him. I, I I won't go so far as to say never has, because you know, two years ago, three years ago, four years ago. And it wasn't just Lewis, it was all of the other drivers. Max's reputation for his for being an aggressive driver was one that all of the drivers recognized and would talk about the fact that they would give him more room because he was an aggressive driver and they didn't think that he would pull back in a situation like this. And, you know, especially when Max was not in the fight for a championship and coming up on folks who were, they would very quickly make the assessment of better I don't get into a tangle with Max and screw my championship hope up than to hold my ground just to hold my ground. That's Max, I think, is still operating under the assumption, under the belief that drivers like Lewis and some of the other drivers still view him that same way and are still going to go and make the same calculation when they get involved with him. And Lewis, at least, I think is making it clear that he's not. Exactly. I I think that that's part of it also. But I just don't think he has any respect for Lewis. And he's trying, he's he gunning, it, gunning after Lewis. And I just think that that's poor form. So then, after this incident that knocks Max back, and he's struggling for performance and struggling to keep going for a bit, and and finally he got tires and he got better, you're thinking to yourself, yeah, it really can't get much worse for Red Bull. And then it does. (laughs) Checo struggling for performance, um, not moving nearly as quick as Max is, even though he's in a fight for second place. Red Bull decides to roll the dice. And and honestly, I thought the strategy was questionable to begin with. But decides to roll the dice and see if they can have Max gain a couple of positions ahead of Sergio. And they, they tell Sergio to let him pass. And see if, you know, maybe he can get past Alonzo. And if he can get past Alonzo, maybe he can get past Leclerc and take enough points off of Leclerc that, you know, it would it would help Sergio in his mm-hmm. attempt. And they told Sergio that they were going to let Max through, and if Max couldn't pull it off, 
they were going to switch positions again. So it sounds like problem number one was that while they told Checo this, they never told Max this. Or if they did, he didn't listen. No, it sounds like Max was never told that that was the deal. You either pull off the passes or we're going to pull you back. That was number one. Problem number two, and there is some question as to when this happened. So now we get to the last lap of the race and Max we, we discovers that he cannot pick up any positions now that he's been let through. And honestly, it was pretty clear within, I think, what, two or three laps after they let Max through that it wasn't happening. Mm-hmm. Red Bull waited. And, and I think that was the other problem is that Red Bull waited too long. Now, if you listen to the... The statement that Red Bull released after the incident was that Max was told to give the position back in the last corner. And certainly when we saw the the video replay, or or when we saw the video, which I think was time delayed with the audio, it appeared that it happened in the last corner. But I question that. I think, A, it probably happened a little earlier, but the other thing was, why did it happen so late on that last lap? That call needed to have come a whole lot earlier. But they radioed Max, and they told him at that, theoretically, supposedly, in the last corner, which the last corner is what? A couple of hundred feet away from the finish line? That he needed to give the position back to to Checo, and Max outright refused. Mm Mm-hmm. And he didn't just outright refuse. It was, I told you, don't ask me that. And don't ever ask me that again. The radio message was kind of shocking. Oh, yeah. And just rude. Yeah. And I think that that's... And and I get there's been a lot of public outcry and a lot of um, hate mail directed at Max... But mm-hmm. I think the source of some of that, um, and you know, the source of a lot of anti-Max sentiment is how many times did Checo pull aside for Max? How many times did Checo help Max's drive to get where he was going and well, be the right kind of wingman for Max? That, that's it. You know, and you know, Max had nothing to lose this time. That that Checo supported Max and there is a very strong case that could be made that um, if it wasn't for Checo in Abu Dhabi last year, Max still wouldn't. Max would have only had his championship this year. Mm-hmm. And he wouldn't have won last year. There is a very strong argument that could be made around that. You know, Checo has been a very strong team player and has has made decisions sometimes without being asked by the team that supported the team. Yeah. He and, is he is truly yeah. a team player and Max is out for Max. So Red Bull has released a statement. They released a statement this week um, that said, regretfully Max was only informed at the final corner of the request to give up position without all the necessary information being relayed. This put Max, who has always been an open and fair team player, in a compromising situation with little time to react, which was not our intention. 
Following the race, Max spoke openly and honestly, allowing for both drivers to resolve any outstanding issues or concerns. The team accepts Max's reasoning. The conversation which was a personal matter, which will remain private between the team and no further comment will be made. So, yes, I agree. Red Bull made mistakes. They never should have made that call as late as they did, and they did not give themselves the time to to convey to Max what he needed to know. And honestly, they didn't give Max enough time to react in a way that would not have further compromised it. So there, there's that. But Max's attitude was wrong. Oh, 100%. Max's attitude was 100% wrong. And the thing is, you know, folks have, have drawn a line that possibly there was some incident in Monaco and that's what it was and that's where the... I don't think so. I think this goes back even further than that. I think it goes all the way back. If you remember years ago, when Max was still over at Alpha, at um, uh, Toro Rosso, driving alongside Carlos Sainz, Singapore that year, Max was told to give up a position to Carlos and let Carlos pass, and he outright refused. And he was asked, and I'm wondering if you remember this now as I tell the story. He was asked after the race why he didn't do it. And his response was, if I knew, his response was, I knew if I gave the position back, my father would punch me in the balls. Mm -hmm. That's why I didn't think, that's why I think he wouldn't have given up the place no matter what. And, you know, you can turn around and say he's a, a fair team player and all of that, but you go, all the way back to the Toro Rosso days, and he was the same way. The only difference was he wasn't mouthing off on the radio when he did it. Exactly. So, looking after the race, obviously, there was a lot of frustration. You know, regardless of the statement that we saw, and the statement came out, you know, as we came into this week. Um, Checo said some interesting stuff. Interesting. Some kind of heated stuff. Um, however, you know, you know, in his initial interviews, he made comments very similar to the stuff that he said on the radio. You know, we saw the social media posts from him about, you know, um, Max has him to thank for a significant part of his two titles and, um, you know, a, a lot of frustration that was expressed from Checo around the level of support that he got from Max, given all that he's done. Um, that was what a lot of his initial team interviews, and then apparently he got yanked. Oh. Yeah. Um, he got yanked, was pulled back into the Red Bull hospitality where there were some conversations between uh, him and Christian Horner and Helmut Marco, and supposedly Max was involved in that too. Um, then he came back out, and he... All he would say was that it was an internal matter. <laughs> Don't go off script. Yeah. So now in Abu Dhabi, Checo was asked about it and said, you know, F1 is a very emotional sport. There's no other sport where you can speak yourself live. And it's only in F1 that this happens. So there's a lot of emotions going on and a lot of things to say. I obviously regret a lot of the things that I said after the race because, yeah, I am back with Max in a relationship that we used to have. And we are both on the team and everyone is ready to move forwards. Okay. And 
you know, Max says that, that they, they've spoken it out and they're better and it's water under the bridge. There's been some folks who were there who, or, or who were in Abu Dhabi who said that, you know, the, the body language doesn't necessarily reflect that this is sorted. You know, you know, all I can think of is that, again, another incident in Red Bull's history, and and we 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 were reminded of it today. <laughs> Multi twenty one. Yep. I mean, this was very much the multi twenty one scenario in Malaysia, where Mark Weber w- was leading Sebastian Vettel. And the team radioed in that they wanted both drivers to turn their engines down and manage them to get through the race and hold position with Mark staying in front and Seb behind him. And Seb ignored instructions, left his engine turned up, fought with Weber, ultimately overtook overtook him, despite being yelled at on the radio by the team, and held the position. And Red Bull didn't handle it well. Mm-mm. Nor did Sebastian either, by the way. And, and arguably, that was part of the reason why Mark left the team. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I can't think that, that they have wrapped this any better. The only good thing is that, well, it was a lot, you know, we had one race left in the season. Yeah. That, that was really about it. Yeah, so now we can go in the off season and let it fester and boil and well, you know. yeah, we'll we'll see what happens. Yeah, Red Bull is not good about not creating discontent in their garage. Yeah, well, you know, Helmet Marco is part of that problem. Yeah, Helmet Marco has his golden boy, and we've heard this from several drivers, and, and it's his golden boy that gets all the favor. Mm-hmm. So. Moving on. So I want to keep things moving. We've got some, I mean. Um, yeah, we cannot have a three, four hour long show to make up for however many weeks we've been No, missing. and since this is the last, this was the last race of the season, I, I did want to get to something. So anyway, um, the last seat, well, the last two seats have been sorted in Formula One. Um, as expected, Logan Sargent got enough super license points that he will be on the grid uh, for 2023. And unfortunately, Mick uh, Schumacher's future has been sorted. He is out of a drive and will be replaced by Nico Hulkenberg, who has not had a regular drive in Formula One in two years. And, you know, we've been wondering if how he's going to mix. Um, (laughs) With Kevin. Yeah. Because they don't historically get along. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That could be interesting. Yeah. I mean, between that and over at Alpine, it could be very interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but Nico Hulkenberg is back in Formula One with Haas for 2023. Um, headed out, as everybody knows, Sebastian Vettel. And... If you were unaware going into the the weekend this week, um, the drivers had um, what was, I guess, billed initially in their WhatsApp group as a farewell dinner to Seb in Abu Dhabi. Um, It is the first time since 2016 
that all of the drivers on the grid have gone out for a night out. And to put that in perspective, at one time, at least once a season. Actually, no. It was not a regular thing. The 2016 one was like the first time that something like that had happened in decades, if at all. Oh, I had thought that they had gone out bowling and they'd done... No, no, the the bowling thing is Lewis would do that, and he still does, with with the team. Oh, with his team. Yes, and it's always after the race in Suzuka. Mm -hmm. They go bowling, and Lewis pays for it. Well, Lewis actually was the one who organized this. Got all the drivers together in their WhatsApp group and said, hey, you know, let's go out to dinner. And Lewis paid for it. Word is to the tune of $140,000. Hey, let me do the math for everybody driving right now. That is $7,000 per driver. Yeah. Now, we we don't know where they went in Abu Dhabi, and I'm assuming... Oh, and no booze. And no booze. Um, You know, obviously, it was somewhere expensive in Abu Dhabi. Yeah. But... Well, I mean, it also could be a function of they went to a really, really nice restaurant and then they rented it out so that they didn't get disturbed. That, that's entirely possible, too. And that could have been and that the they... staff and all of that They stuff. paid what they would normally take in for yeah. the evening. And that may be why it was so expensive. That, that could be it as well. Um, everything that we've heard is that it was a fantastic evening for the drivers, um, with a lot of talk from several corners of, we need to do this more often. And it may actually now become an annual thing. Um, there was a lot of talk about how great it was, you know, as competitive as they are and, 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 and such, to be able to get together socially and not have, apparently racing was not a, a topic of conversation with anybody the whole night. <laughs> It was talking about other stuff and other things um, and went really well. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens there. I, I'm hopeful. I like seeing those pictures. I like seeing that level of camaraderie. I mean, it's one of the things that we like about watching the pre- and post-race from, um, um, from Sky and, and BBC is seeing these off-track interactions and everyone joking with each other. Yeah, we, we like the dichotomy of the fierce competitor on the track and the the fact that there are really and truly only 10 people and 20 people yeah. in the world that know what you are experiencing mm-hmm. that year, that moment. That, it, that That's how tight and small that bubble really is. Now, when they did this last in 2016, they went to an Italian restaurant in, in China. China. So interesting. Yeah. Um, But I also think it's a real testament to the growth and development of Sebastian Vettel. You just told the probably I would consider one of the lowest points of Sebastian's trajectory in multi-21. Now, you know. Um, One of the lower ones, because there was also the incident, and it was before we watched in Formula One, or we were watching Formula One, um, the crash between him and and, uh, Mark Webber in Turkey um, that it's believed it was deliberate and there's the video of Seb walking through the gravel and and making the crazy sign and and Mm -hmm. so I mean there's there's been others but yeah and you know he's he's had his own journey of Mm -hmm. maturity happen to the point that 
truly, he's grown up so much that people really like him. Yeah. And I think that that's part of the testament too. Um, I, I, w- I almost really wished that they had interviewed Mark because I would love to hear what Mark has to say about the Sebastian of today versus the Sebastian back then. Um, well, does they may he have on Channel 4. We haven't seen their coverage. Yeah. Do, does he see the growth or is this something that, you know, just wasn't shared before? Well, for, I think a lot of it was stuff that was there. The personality that we're seeing has always been there, but we didn't see it. Um, you know, there, there was talk years ago when, when Seb was... I want to say it was the year he won either number three or number four over at Red Bull. And he was getting booed on the podium and, and criticized for the the number one finger and, and uh, the, the donuts and, and, and that stuff. And Christian Horner going, I don't understand why people don't like Seb because he is got an he, he's a very nice person incredibly kind very friendly very approachable he has an amazing sense of humor um you know one of the things that that uh, they talked about is he is a incredible fan of of monty python's flying circus mm-hmm. um but everything that christian said it was like well yeah may, maybe i would like somebody like that and every so often these stories would come out about seb that you're like, actually, he, he does sound kind of like an amazing person. But then you'd go through the race weekend and you'd see him with the, you know, the the, the red mist and, and the competitive nature and, and would fall away. And you know, there was a story a couple of years ago about, and I think it was like the second year he was at Ferrari, that he was in Austin and somebody saw him and recognized him and was chatting with him in some in like a hotel parking lot and it was before formula one had really taken off and was chatting with him and and, you know talked about how he had a great conversation with him and seb had asked him if he was going to the race and he said no you know i i i can't it's it's too expensive i'm gonna watch it on tv and the next day he goes out to his car and there's two tickets for the race sitting underneath his windshield wiper from Sebastian. Oh, wow. And, and and it's those kind of stories that you'd hear every so often that seem disconnected. And then you, you look at the last three years from him and it's, well, yeah, that actually is who he is. Well, I was amazed at the, you know, obviously the Grand Prix Sunday was sort of all a farewell mm-hmm. to, to Seb and, there was a statement that everybody kept making about how he's so personable and he's so open and he's so, you know, transparent. And okay, yeah, we went through the angry sub years and all of that. But I kept thinking to myself, but he's the most private. He was had always been the most private guy. Like, how many years did we not know? You know, did he have kids? Mm-hmm. Was he married? We at one point knew he had two children, but didn't know if he had a wife. I mean, it was like all of those things layer into that, you know. And finally, somebody said that Seb was incredibly open and and friendly and approachable for the fans and for the people in the in the paddock, but incredibly private. Yeah. And his private life Kate, stayed stayed very very separate. And it was like finally somebody said that because that was so it, like. 
he's such a bit of an enigma, quite frankly. You kind of put all these faces and parts of Seb together. However, I know you wanted to talk about it, so I'm going to go on and share. You were so overwhelmed and so thought it was <laughs> the sweetest thing that Seb announces that he was going to run Abu Dhabi and invited all of the teams and whoever wanted to join him. And apparently, like, everybody did. So he, he organized a group track event um, Saturday night uh, called Run With Seb for everybody working in the paddock. 200 people, somewhere around 200 people took part in the event. Um, he invited everyone to either run, walk, or hitch a lift on the back of a flatbed truck that went around the circuit. Um, Mick Schumacher joined him on the run. They completed most of the, the lap together. Charles Leclerc attended the start, as did Stefano Domenicali. Uh, attendees handed special shirts for the run, reading Danka Seb with a graphic of him uh, bowing before his RB9 car after winning his fourth world title at the Indian Grand Prix in 2013. Um, and I think it was after it was the race after that that everybody gave him donuts. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so what he said ahead of the start, run at your own pace, take it easy, go as fast as you like. It's just a nice thing to do together. Thank you, Formula One, for all these years, and thank you to all the people in the paddock. We travel the whole year together. I thought it was just a nice idea to invite everybody. Um, in addition the, to, you know, well, to, I guess, a company, the musical company, DJ, of the 5.2-kilometer circuit, um, Vettel's dad, Norbert, who mm-hmm. I was thrilled that he was there, and and thrilled the way he was embraced by the Aston Martin team this weekend. Uh, but Norbert plugged his iPod, his iPod into the circuit PA system and played things like Wonderwall, Don't Look Back in Anger by Oasis, Drops of Jupiter by Train, and Blitzkrieg Bop by the Ramones. <laughs> okay. How it gets better, though. humanizing is that? Just... You know, we, we've not met Norbert. We don't know Norbert like anything else. But just the, you can just imagine proud dad going up to the PA guy and going, can I plug my iPod yeah. in? And it's probably like old school iPod that's the size of a deck of cards. <laughs> I mean, it's probably not even like, it's it's probably like really old. And you just know that that's, that's proud dad. But that's not all. Because after, so... Seb then hung around until the very end of the run to clap people home as they crossed the line, um, chatted with participants, posed for pictures, and signed some t-shirts and passes. Um, Aston arranged special drinks event for the paddock ahead of the run, which included customized bottles of Peroni beer that read Grazie Seb, um, and there was a placard for people to sign and leave messages for him, thanking him for his contributions to F1 over the years. And that's on top of Red Bull and Ferrari held events for him over the weekend, um, Ferrari gave him a signed engine cover, and uh, which at the event, Seb went and spoke in Italian to the team. Of course. Because he learned Italian for them. <laughs> um, and Red Bull held an event where they gave him a signed rear wing end plate. And I don't think, you know, we, we've seen several drivers leave, and it's been... You know, Jensen Button is is the perfect example of, you know, a lot of emotion when he left. 
um, and a lot of emotion when we thought he was leaving and then didn't leave, <laughs> but a lot of emotion when he left, but nothing like this. Well, yeah. I mean, Kimmy Reichen was like a ripple mm-hmm. in comparison. You know, the closest, the closest I could come up with is um, when Masa, read my mind, stop it, get out of there, it's icky. Masa left and then didn't leave. <laughs> Masa left and then didn't leave. But when Masa left, the origato on the back of his yeah Brazil Brazil like that that was like probably okay that's a big deal, but nothing like this level. Now again, granted, in our history of watching Formula One, other than Lewis, no one has been this decorated either. No, we were watching when. Michael Schumacher left. Oh, that's true. But Michael left, like, that was just silence. It was silence just kind of gone. He just didn't mm-hmm. come back. Um, yeah, you're right. I forgot about the fact that Michael had come back and didn't yeah. do well. He, he was I'm... driving when we were watching. Um, also leaving the grid, unfortunately, is Daniel Ricciardo. Um, what, what's odd about the situation with Daniel at this point is... Helmut Marco on Thursday announced to German media that Daniel would be joining the team as the third drivers for test and development and promotional work. Um, and then the next day walked it back. Did Daniel actually agree to that? Well, that's the thing. <laughs> there, there's no signed contract at this point. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so that was a little, a little embarrassing. Um, the rumor mill has picked up that Mattia Bonotto is on his way out the door. Um, the theory, oddly enough, is that he'll be around till January. Um, and the rumor mill is saying that Frederick Vasseur over at Alfa Romeo is the leading candidate to replace him. And Fred was approached and um, gave one of those Nines. non-denial denials. Yeah. Of, you know, well, we'll just have to wait and see, but nothing's been settled yet. Oh, my. Yeah. You know, there's been a lot of talk of, well, you know, we shouldn't get rid of Mattia because the team has come so far under him and they've made so much progress and they're still, you know, building and they're still developing. And and, and I get that, you know, there has been a significant change in this team and the fact that they were strong, a strong challenger mm-hmm. initially. Um, they still went second in the championship. Yeah, they still ended up second in the, cha- in, in the Constructors' Championship and Charles got second. Um, but let, let's also not forget the fact that, you know, what was it? Three races in and Charles had a 45-point lead that evaporated. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we'll see where that goes. Um, and if you haven't noticed, if you didn't notice this this weekend, something new happened on the podium. From this race forward, drivers who get podiums not only will get a trophy, but they are going to be awarded FIA medals. Why? So... The reasoning, despite the the goofy statement from the FIA stating that they are 
a unique personal memento to commemorate their outstanding achievement. I know you probably threw up a little in your mouth. Oh, I did. Um, <laughs> but I think I got some on the microphone. The the reasoning actually makes a bit of sense. So depending on a driver's contract and the wording that's in it, when a driver ends up on the podium and gets a trophy, that trophy, especially the original trophy, goes to the team, mm-hmm. not the driver. Depending on the contract, a lot of drivers can get replicas of those trophies made to represent it, but they can't get the trophies. The reason for the medals is so that they have something that's truly theirs. Right. And I'm like, okay, I can't argue that one as much. Yeah, but yeah. Now, it, it's not the original Bernie Eccleston proposal of wiping out the point system and going with medals and the driver that gets the most medals is the is the, the driver's champion at the end of the year. It's not that. <laughs> but it is simply so that the drivers have an actual award that is theirs and the team does not get. Got it. So that I think is fair. And unsurprisingly, and this was of course before the engine blew up. (sighs) Poor guy. Lewis Hamilton says that um, he's looking forward to not having to drive this car (laughs) ever again (laughs) after this week's Formula One tire test. So here's the question you really have to ask yourself. You know, one of the things that is rumored to be in Lewis's contract was that he mimicked off of Seb's to get the cars. Yeah. Oh, he said, this one he doesn't want. <laughs> not only has he said that this is one that he does not want, but Toto Wolf ha- has said that um, this is not a car that will be remembered fondly. He said, I don't think it's going to have the highest place in the Mercedes-Benz Museum in Stuttgart. Maybe it's going to go a little bit in the caves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, th- this was the last race of the season. Mm-hmm. Our, our, our season has wrapped up. And, and I know you want to talk about the results of Fantasy GP, and I am forcing you to wait. And not just wait one week. We need to let everybody know it's going to be three weeks. Yeah, because you're traveling. Both weeks. Both weeks. Back-to-back weekends, guys. But, you know, that that we're at the end of the week, or at the end of the season, I, I wanted to know if, well, uh, I'll put it this way. Through the course of the season, was was there anything, you know, as we watched the, the F1 season that you were going to take away from your time in the F1 tent? <laughs> Um, Alan, really? (laughs) Oh my. What am I going to take away from this (laughs) season? Well, over the course of the 20 too many races we've had, (laughs) I am going to take away a loathing hatred of all sprint races, except Brazil. I am (laughs) going to take away... A desire for Mercedes to show up with a car that actually works next year. And a warm welcome to one of my favorite part-time drivers, Nico Hulkenberg. (laughs) (laughs) So, 
You know, I, I'm surprised that you had nothing about, you know... There's just so much. Coming out of everything that has happened in 22 and the controversy around the stewarding and the marshalling and unceremoniously sending uh, Michael Massey to the curb, nothing around the stewarding and the fact that for the second year in a row, and, and again, this goes back to, I think Max has a reason to be really, really pissed off at the FIA. For the second year in a row, Max won a title and it was controversial. You know, mm-hmm. this year it was controversial. Well, actually, once again, it was controversial and not due to anything that he did. Yeah. And, you know, all of the things that we have learned, supposedly, that the stewarding hasn't gotten better. See, here's the thing. I would have conver- mentioned that, except for the fact that I so, it just gives me the hives. So I try to block it out of my mind. Well, I actually, I went and checked and I, I have a comment from Muhammad bin Salayim on this. Mm-hmm. Yes. He had to say this. My actions and the actions of my officers are determined by one thing and one thing only, and that is the letter of the law. The letter. Okay, that's not Muhammad bin Salayim. <laughs> That is Ted Hastings. Yes, like the battle. From our other favorite British television show, Line of Duty. And here's a shameless plug. It is available on Hulu. And if you are not watching it, you should be. I found it. I, I found at least the first season on YouTube, too. Okay. It's also available like on Peacock. or There's another streaming service that also has it. But Hulu has the most seasons. But, but he insists that, you know, we have learned much and we have changed things and it's We have learned better. much and made little action. That's, that sums up the entire season. I mean, you got to ask the question coming out of Brazil where we have a safety car restart and the one and only lapped car who was supposed to unlap himself ends up in the middle of the freaking grid. Yeah, I didn't understand how that happened. I know how it happened. And it's just as bad. So what happened was all of this is done via computers now and and sets everything up. Yuki came at the start of the safety car period. Yuki came into the pits and... Because it's a slightly faster speed into the pits, it showed that he started unlapping himself when he first entered the pits. Changed his tires, he came back out at the back, which meant he didn't actually unlap himself, but the computer system didn't register it. So when the command came out to un- that lapped cars could unlap themselves, it lost track of where Yuki was. Oh, so instead of waiting for him to get clear, the car safety car was pulled in before he'd made it all the way through the pack. Oh, my. But it was due to the new computer system. But, you know, between that, between the issues that we've had with rain and all of these other goofy calls that have happened over the course of this past year... 
you're not there yet. And at least you got to be able to turn around and go, this is how we interpret the rules and everybody understands how you interpret the rules. And that's, I mean, that's what happened in Japan. Nobody understood what, you know, they, they were they were following a different rule book, mm-hmm. essentially. Yeah. But we're going to look back on this and call it, it was a transition year because... You know, the one thing I will say about the stewarding situation is we stopped having a single name that was the vote. Or well, the, we do now. But, you know, there is yeah, no Charlie the Whiting. There is yeah. no Michael Mossy. There is no, no of that right now. And so that also helps. That stops a little bit of the pressure. And by the way, you forgot one of our farewells. I forgot one of our farewells. Mm-hmm. Ross Braun. That's true. I, and I mentioned it months ago and I forgot all about it until they mentioned it this morning. Yeah. I'm going to miss him. He's been really quiet this year. Apparently he's going fishing. He's going to rewrite the fishing regulations. Until he gets bored. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. Our last story. Mm-hmm. Do want to talk about it. And, and um, weeks ago, while we were gone, F1 announced a new, I guess, arcade gaming experience in London that they were going to open next year. It, it reminded me a lot of, of kind of like a, an F1 themed Dave and Buster's or Disney Quest type of experience. Um, which, which five people got the reference to Disney Quest, by the way. Yeah, I know. But <laughs> Dave and Buster's, I, I kind of figured folks would know that. Um, but I also think that means it's not going to last very long. But we'll see how that goes. Um, but that's opening, I think, next year in London. Could be interesting. They also announced that, um, actually, within the last couple of days, running from March 24th to July 16th of this year, the F1 Exhibition Madrid. Um, it'll be at IFEMA Madrid, um, which is a primary event space in the Spanish capital. Um, it's intended to be, quote, a stunning adventure through the extraordinary world of F1. Hmm. Um, I'm it, just saying we need a vacation spot and we do have a adopted son who lives in Madrid. True. It's a 90-minute exhibition. I guess you, you go in for 90 minutes kind of a thing as opposed to it's only open for 90 minutes. Um, you'll get to sample a wide range of never-before-seen artifacts and contributions from the sports teams, experts, and personalities spread across six purpose-built rooms. So it's going to cover the history, um, incidents, personalities, stories, I, I guess it's one more place that you can experience F1. I, I, you know, as an alternative to going to Silverstone. Because that's what I hear is really the experience. Oh, I have dreams of going to Motorsport Valley. I'm ready. Okay. I, I, I won't question that one. Um, but the exhibition, if you happen to be able to get over to Madrid, like I said, March 24th to July 16th. You can experience the past, present, and future of Formula One. All righty. And with that, we'll call it a show. The
are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. <laughs> a little break? Okay.